0: Let us hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 88, verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you, do you work wonders for the dead? Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are, you, are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath is swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all the day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God, indeed. Well, as you can tell, this is a pretty heavy text we've got before us today. And, um, but I believe it's a, a text the Lord would have his people to consider and, and wrestle with, even if it seemingly doesn't offer a lot of hope in and of itself. I, uh, one of my favorite books I have in my library is a book by Zach Esquine, um, that documents the periodic and routine struggle that Charles Spurgeon would have with depression and seasons of darkness. It's called uh, Spurgeon's, um, I'm thinking off the top of my head, either way, it's Spurgeon's struggles. And that may sound odd to us when you think about someone as with the stature of a guy like Charles Spurgeon, who in England, in the 19th century in the 18th century was the prince of preachers he's that's the title that has followed him even since his death and since his great leadership there in the metropolitan tabernacle there in um baptist tabernacle there in london he pastored this church from a small local church that changed its name to what it was and it was by far with with not even a close second the largest church in london he led a Bible college out there that, led, that trained many young men for preparation and ministry. He, uh, he did, uh, he, his, the church there was doing virtually something that almost no church was doing in its time. They had such an expansive reach of ministries. Um, nothing like the market-driven ministry of American evangelicalism, by the way, but, the, but a real ministry to the poor, to the, to the disenfranchised, the widows, the orphans. And yet this great leader, when you know his story well, routinely wrestled with the weight of darkness in his life, the weight of depression in his life. And when we read Psalm 88, we're forced to ask real questions about our own faith, about our own journey, about our own life. And it seemingly does not resolve at the end like a lot of other psalms as we'll note here in a few moments like this is a unique psalm because it offers one confession at the beginning god of my salvation but from there it gets darker and darker and darker and darker until it just kind of ends and it forces us to ask questions that i'm sure that charles spurgeon asked throughout his ministry you know throughout his life what do we do when dark nights of suffering and depression come what do we do when those nights come and they don't seem to want to go away. What 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 hope can we cling to um, when we are caught in this these dark nights of the soul? That's why I've named it a dark night of the soul. How might the church walk with those who are caught in these types of places in their lives? And so this morning, my my general summary of where we're going to go this morning goes like this: Most Christians or many Christians, that probably is a better way of putting it, many Christians will experience dark nights of the soul at some point during their lives, some for prolonged, extended periods of time. And as we do, we must remember that even as our faith is tested in these prolonged seasons, God promises His church that that we will experience full and final resurrection and encourages us to remain strong for those who are weak among us. There's a lot there that I want to unpack with you this morning because I think it's relevant to us in this moment. I think it's relevant to some specific people in, this, in our own fellowship who have found themselves in very dark seasons. And, they, and they're wondering, God, are you still there? Do you still love me? Do you still, do you still, you still, your promise is still true for me? I mean, I think these are real things that real believers at different times in their life will face um, if, we, um, if we will um, if we'll, if we'll take observation of it. And and look, I'm going to say this in a little bit, but I'm going to say it now, and then we'll cover it more. Sometimes we as Christians who don't experience these things have a hard time with people who do experience these things. And then we become very unwise people in how we handle people in these seasons. So I'm hoping that there's twofold kind of way in which we do this. One is to bring comfort to those who have found themselves in seasons like this. But also for us who are not in seasons like this or maybe have not experienced extreme seasons like this, Can learn some wisdom on how to walk with people in seasons like this i think there's a lot here we can glean this morning i think that's why psalm 88 is given to us that many of many don't have a concept of a christianity that doesn't have a happy ending in this life now we all know what's going to come all of us profess in here that know christ that there's a time coming when christ returns and he will set all things new and all things right again. It began in, in his, his death burial, and resurrection and his ascension, and it will return when he returns, it will be final, the new age to come. We, we all know those kinds of things, but there are oftentimes in this Christian, in this life, and in lives of Christians all across all generations, where we find ourselves where life doesn't always have a happy ending. Kind of like the book of Job. Life doesn't always present the life of faith. I'm sorry, it doesn't always present the life of faith as simply this victorious reality. And I think that's what we get here in these first couple of verses here in Psalm 88, which we'll read here in just again, here in just a second, that if we're willing to wrestle with it, we see the psalmist kind of introduce us to this. Look what it says there. Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you and incline your ears to me. Here's what the psalm, this, like this is the high note of the whole psalm god of my salvation he makes this profession of faith he makes this confession of who god is but but then everything else after this is bleak god of my salvation i'm crying out to you day and night the the, the picture is one of someone who's in in utter darkness and utter difficulty and and it just seems like there's no relief for them i think the best way to understand this is as as a prayer a prayer from this psalmist to, to God, and, and, he is, and he's, he's testing the durability of his faith. He's testing the surety of his faith against those very raw realities that we will, we will face in our lives at different points. And I will tell you that, Like I have been in a season in my life where I'll avoid these things and I won't grieve and I won't allow myself to get to embrace the, the dark places there sometimes because I'm so scared that it might say something untrue about what I believe. But actually when we embrace them as they are, it allows us to actually gleam God for who he really is and we can experience all the wonderful theology we all confess in here in a deeper and a more rich way. Now, again, like I said before, I think many Christians struggle to go here. We, we like our theology we, we we like to have it buttoned down with all the answers to everything right and that's not wrong that's not wrong at all but if our theology and this is what i'm going to contend for this morning, but if our theology our confession has real teeth to it right real teeth to it it remains steady even as we wrestle with these truths again and again and again in light of all the mess that life throws at us at times and particularly for those who find themselves like i'm not even sure what i'm holding on to anymore but i'm still holding on to it and i know that's true for some of us in here in this room this morning and so our outline is going to be pretty simple on the text we're going to walk through it under three headings and then we're going to come back and do some concluding thoughts at the end here i'm not going to say everything that could be said about this text of course we could spend i think several sundays working through this. But I think what we're going to sit here sit with in this text this morning is going to help us um, do three things, which is kind of our outline. Number one, it's going to help us to understand seasons of dark of soul darkness, right? Seasons of a dark nights of the soul. It'll help us understand them better. Number two, it'll help us wrestle with God's uh, sovereign sovereignty and comprehend His sovereignty in the midst of those places. And at the end, it'll also help us understand why it's so routine for many of us who find ourselves in these places to isolate ourselves and want to pull back from God's people when in reality we should be pressing into God's people and God's people should be pressing into us. So those are the three main ideas we're going to walk with this morning. So let's understand for a moment a little better hopefully from this text um, these dark nights of the soul. Now I want to say a couple things before we get back into the text in verses 3 through 5 and 15 through 17. I think it's important that we understand some more context for the Israelites in this very moment. Uh, the Israelites didn't have a completely worked-out theology of the afterlife. If you know anything about their theology, they didn't, they, they, their, their entirety, they thought of God's promises, they connected them to life itself, and so for them, the idea of Sheol was a life departed from God, a life separated from God, and so for them to speak in these kinds of ways was then to also speak as if somehow or another they are being separated from God and that God's promises no longer are for, for them. And I think this is very helpful for us if we'll let it um, help us think through this a little bit in terms of even that moment, because there's this whole arc of redemptive history that God's unfolding throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And there's always, there's always mirrors all the way through the Old Testament that show us bigger pictures than maybe we're willing to see. But nonetheless, as we're going through this arc of redemptive history, we've got to understand that, the, that, that when the, back then they were not able to see what you and I as believers get to see today. Okay? And so it's important that you and I understand the, and, and begin to dive into the whole progressive unfolding of God's redemptive plan and, 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 and how that will then impact us in our own personal theodicy, yes? Our own place where we are wrestling with these things. But I think there's a second thing here that's very closely related to it. Um, When we don't have a proper vision of the life to come, the age to come, we can put all of our hopes in the present moment. I've said this several times over the last few weeks, and I think it's really relevant. I think the psalmist, actually, this is one of the grounds of all the psalms, is they they help us embrace the moment we're in by trusting in God who's not bound by time. So when we don't have a proper vision of the age to come, we can put all of our hopes in the present moment, and any, and, and any challenge to that can cause us to get disheartened, to live with despair, and to forget God and all the bigger picture that has been unfolding. Remember, again, I'll, I'll just point you back to last week, if you were here, that whole picture of the loom, right? And how we get so focused on one thread, and we kind of want to keep pulling on that one thread, and that's, just, that's really, really irrelevant, because I think that's where a lot of us get stuck. And, and, and particularly those among us who might be stuck in a long season where that's all we know. We're just like, I'm just holding on to this one thread, and I don't really know what to do with this. But the logical implication here is that the psalmist is, is, is probably either dying, facing some kind of illness, facing some... We don't really know. It doesn't really give us the indication here. It could be a long season of just uh, of battling, whether it be relational disconnection with other people, maybe just a long, a long history or a long season of misfortune, whatever it may be. But let's be clear, regardless of, regardless of what it is, whether it's illness or some of the long seasons of depression, again, like Spurgeon, if you know his story, his wife was bedridden, but she still supported his ministry, so home life wasn't a sanctuary for him, and he was, and he, and he was a workaholic, literally was a workaholic, and he gave himself to these kind of things, so, so a lot of the things that he found himself struggling with was, his own, was his, own, his own issues, but nonetheless he found himself in these dark spaces in here, no matter like, what happens in these moments is that what we can, we can begin to tell ourselves is that we're blown in this. And that the only thing left for me is death. What, what's, what's to look forward to? So whatever the circumstances, the psalmist clearly has, I think, a lot of broad applicability to all of us here this morning, to believers facing varying degrees of darkness, right? Let's just think of a few examples. We think about believers who are in extreme contexts across the globe, both in our generation and in generations In the past and then feeling the danger of being a believer at every turn for some of them they get caught into that and they're like and death might be preferable Uh, we can think about believers in hard seasons of life whether that's family life or work life or whatever it may be relational life and they feel like no one can possibly understand my plight not even god or well maybe even god's uh, abandoned me and so, death is preferable. We can think of believers who face prolonged battles of illness or disease with no relief. And sometimes death feels preferable. It's natural and right to see how we can connect this to another book, right? We mentioned it a second ago, Job. If you know anything about Job, one of the, one of the wonderful, I get to study Job when I was in college and just wrestling with those kind of hard questions, if, if, if God is good, then why do people suffer, right? Uh, maybe you're familiar with the book by Harold Kushner. Uh, he's a, a, a Jewish man, Jewish professor, Jewish scholar, and he wrestled with this. Now, he comes to the wrong conclusions. Why do good things happen to bad people? I'm sorry, why do bad things happen to good people? And I think, you know, we get, the, we get that. We understand, like, he's asking the wrong question just by the title, right? But that doesn't mean that we can just dismiss hard times. I mean, Job was a righteous man for all intents and purposes. God said so. He was a righteous man. And he sought to honor God. He sought to pray for his children. He sought to build a, a life that glorified God. And, 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 and because God had, uh, had desired to allow the things to come befall him so that he could display his glory, his entire life crumbled around him. Uh, tornado destroyed his property killed his children his marriage disintegrated I mean got quite embattled his health was failing and he had a bunch of dumb friends who had no concept how to walk with him in the middle of this I I can't imagine a more miserable life than that right all of it we were told though is from God How do, you, how do you wrestle with that? How do you square with that? I think this is exactly the nature, and there's some even posit that the writer of this is actually the one who wrote Job and gave us Job. We don't know that for sure. That's just a speculation. But some scholars believe that, and you can see the, the, the similarities between Psalm 88 and the whole narrative of Job. But what do we do with God in that? I mean, the, the psalmist does this in this text. He asks Hard questions of God. He wrestles with the implications of who God says he is and who God has revealed himself to be. And he doesn't know what to do. And that's what we see in verses. And so then he tells us and helps us understand the the darkness he's facing. Look at verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand look also verse 15 through 17 Afflicted and close to death from my youth up i suffer your terrors i am helpless your wrath is swept over me your dreadful assaults destroy me they 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 surround me like a flood all the day long they they close in on me all together it's true isn't it i mean this psalmist is he's number one overwhelmed by his troubles Darkness is an overwhelming reality. And, and, and one of the things we've got to recognize when we're not in it and someone else is, this is, this is, it's not always easy to just kind of throw our little pet little Christian colloquialisms into it. As if somehow know that they don't believe that or haven't believed that in their past. Whatever the circumstances of the, of the lament of this particular passage, they, he feels trapped. He even says as much. He's trapped by the darkness of the moment. His his faith is still intact. Because again, he said it right there, beginning God of my salvation, his faith is still seemingly intact, but he's definitely feeling the testing of it in the midst of the circumstances he's facing. Not only that, but darkness makes us feel weak. I'm a man without strength, he says. Not only is he trapped by them, but he feels utterly incapable to do anything about it. Whatever it is he's facing, he has no resource within himself to address it. And I will say this later and unpack this a little bit more, but I don't know if that's entirely a bad thing. In fact, it might be exactly the reason why God allows these situations in our life. So that we actually return back to a God who actually is sovereign and good over, over our lives. And sometimes, sometimes, the Lord allows that in our life. Darkness makes us feel forgotten by God. I mean, look what he's cut off from God. Look how many times he says this in these, these few verses we just read. For someone in this time period, as I a minute ago, facing death with no worked out theology of life, this sounds dreadful. If God's promises only are attached to the present life, then it would be natural for someone to feel this way. And sometimes this is exactly what happens in believers' lives, too. We're not exempt from this. We get so consumed by the darkness of the moment that, that we forget and start to forget the larger picture and we forget about the larger plan of God and, 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 and the, the larger loom, as I've mentioned before, and we get so caught up in that moment that we just don't see anything good coming out of what we're facing in this moment. But there's more to his experience we saw in verses 15 through 18, right? The darkness is so present in his life. And just notice what he says there in verse 18 that my companions have become my darkness. Like, dark, like his, he's been abandoned by everyone, and his closest companion is his depression, is his darkness, is his dark night of the soul. This is all he has. Like, he doesn't feel any relationship to anyone else around him. He feels absolutely numb to everything else around him. And he has now dissolved that, at least, is what he's saying. And he's, remember, remember who he's taking this to? He's taking this to God. Again, I just want to say the, the, the frame of this is he's testing the durability of his faith, so he's not afraid to go to God with even this seemingly absurd confession. Darkness is my only friend, God. And you just know, like, like many of us, we kind of feel like God's like, really? But God's not easily offended by our absurdity. He's just not. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer terrors. I am helpless. And so that's the experience this psalmist is bringing before us. He is openly, through this prayer, allowing us to view, look look from the outside in through his own struggle, of how he is saying, God of my salvation, I'm crying out to you. And he says this several times throughout the psalm. But as he's doing it, he's getting darker and darker and darker and darker. And then it just ends. Friend, does your theology have a space for this? if it doesn't i would trust that you go back and examine the scriptures again because that leads us to our second point the struggle is real when you're in these moments to comprehend god's sovereign hand in it right the, he, he allows us to just see this he's not a, he, he's not embarrassed to, to, to let his questions and his concerns be known to God and, frankly, for them to be known to, the, to others who might benefit from it. Look at verses 6 through 8. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and, you're, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Like The experience is causing the psalmist... Okay, get ready to consider how God is involved in his plight. And he's, he, he's going back and he has to question everything he knows about God, not because he's actually questioning it itself, but again, as I've said before, and we'll say it a thousand times probably before the sermon's over, he's testing the durability of his faith. Now, we don't... We don't know. It's not clear if his real conclusion, if this is his real conclusion or not. Like you got to have done all these things to me. Like he's like it, 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 we can read it in a way where you say like he's blaming God for all this, or if he's just trying to reconcile the circumstances with his theology. He knows God's sovereign, and he's just simply stating, "Okay, Lord, I'm trying to. I'm trying." To put all the pieces together i'm trying to understand this and i tend to have the second reading for the psalmist again namely because he begins the prayer god of my salvation it might be the only bright spot in the entire text but it's a big bright spot it's a big bright spot So based on his profession there in verses 1, and frankly he comes back to it in verse 9 where he he continues to say, My eyes grow dim and through sorrow, but every day I call upon you, O Lord, and I spread out my hands to you. Like I I just tend to believe that the second option is the most reasonable and likely option for the psalmist. It's highly unlikely that he actually believes that God is out to get him or to hurt him. It's highly unlikely Rather, he's bringing his plight before the Lord, seeking to reconcile what he knows about God as he has revealed himself to his people. It's kind of a confronting the dark night of the soul with the truth of who God is. It's it's actually a confronting of his own soul, though, more than it is reconciling his theology. And, And he's willing and knows his God's big enough to absorb his questions. I mean, that's exactly where he goes in the second part here right verses 10 through 12 do you work wonders for the dead do you do the departed rise up and praise you is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in abaddon are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of for, forgiveness i mean just put those questions in more real world terms for us will you be with me in death again for the jew in this moment for the israelite in this moment this was inconceivable this is the land of forgetfulness and so he is in some ways he's working out his theology of end times or, or, or the afterlife right here and before us right will you get the glory does is there, do you actually get glory from my suffering god will with my faithfulness will my faithfulness or will your faithfulness be magnified from the grave? If I'm just dead, do you get glory from that? Do, do, do you, did your faithfulness show through that? Again, the afterlife was seen as a place of being cut off or forgotten by God. For the Israelites, there was no answer for death. It loomed over life. Even those of the people of God... It would be centuries before the idea of resurrection would even come into, the Judea, uh, into Judaism in any legitimate way. And in Jesus' time, we see those two schools, right? The Pharisees were the ones who believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees were the ones who didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, we typically hear people say, well, the Sadducees were the liberals. Actually, they weren't. They were the traditionalists. Because again, as I said before, historically Israelites didn't have a worked out theology of the end time, so they had no place for the work of resurrection. It was actually the Pharisees who in their theology worked out as they began to work and understand God's promises started to see that there's actually a resurrection in God's promises and that's the tension that we see in Jesus' time. And here we got Jesus who's coming in and he's bringing real life to that truth. See, the psalmist is working his Understanding out here in these early days before a theology of the afterlife was even worked out and holistically among the, the Israelites and, he's, and then he's doing it as he's facing the darkness because he has no other way to actually do it, right? I mean, what do you do when you're facing the darkest part of your life? You have no other recourse but to say, all right, this is what I've always known. God, is this who you are? And how do I reconcile that with all the promises that you've given me in, in your word? The resurrection of Christ and the promise of our future resurrection as the promises of redemption continue to unfold reshape this for us, doesn't it? We can see things that the psalmist, when he originally wrote this, cannot see because we are now privy to the whole arc of of redemption. So I want to make sure that we say this before we move on from this point. God is not afraid of us working out testing the durability of our faith, and he's not some fickle child with with short man syndrome. He gets offended because we might have to wrestle with what we believe about him in the midst of life's real circumstances. In fact, he would say, he would welcome it. Come. I am a strong arm for you. I am a strong shoulder for you. Jesus says as much in the Gospels. But the problem that happens is that even as we are and you can see this in the Psalm itself. Even as we're wrestling with these things in, in a way that's true and trusting in what God has said, He is, and we're not afraid to do this. If we're not careful, what will happen is, is we will tend to isolate, as I mentioned, and it's a third point, and we'll feel and feel alone in these seasons of depression, these seasons of darkness. My companions shun me. Right? You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Verse eight. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Verse 18, you've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Again, I mentioned it a a few minutes ago, but it's important to consider the the tendency to kind of feel isolated in the midst uh, of of all these things and cut off from not only God, but from our closest friends. When we are in seasons of of darkness, we, we don't think others will understand, do we? When we're in seasons of darkness, we feel trapped in a room by ourselves, don't we? When we're in seasons of darkness, our sorrow feels so unique to us that we don't feel that anyone else can offer anything to us. And of course, then, the question is, is that true? I think we all recognize that the reasonable answer to that is no, it's not true. Absolutely not true. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't, that we should callously dismiss others when they feel this way. Again, this gets in kind of the, the, the whole like territory of Job's dumb friends. I mean, how silly were some of their responses to Job? Right. I wish we had time to get into some of those things, but it, it, it is quite striking when. These are these these people believe the same thing Job did, and they're questioning Job's faithfulness, they're questioning whether it was a sin, if he had sinned against God, they question all kinds of things because that's all their theology could hold. But Job stood there, and even in the middle his wife would ridicule him. Why don't you just curse God and die? Now you tell me how you'd feel if your wife told you that, dads, husbands. Or if your husband said this to you, wives? If we read Job and consider how his friends approach Job's supper, we see almost in every case how not to approach a person in dark nights of the soul. Right? Don't be that guy. Like, if you don't take anything away do it, don't, don't be that person. Don't just offer theological platitudes as if the person you're offering to has, has, has either, one, forgotten them, or, two, have denied them altogether. It's likely they haven't. They just need space. They need a constant friend. They need time to test the durability of their faith. Doesn't mean you need to be absent from that. In fact, I'd say quite the opposite. Instead of offering superfluous counsel, and I've done this too many times to people in times of suffering, and I've done it mostly not out of concern for them, but out of fear of my own faith. Right? Our God's big enough to absorb all of that. Our presence with, with gospel assurance is still very vital. And it helps us be a faithful friend who just stands. And did you know that you can stand and proclaim the gospel in silence with a brother and sister in Christ? Just be there. Allow them to wrestle and think through why this is the case don't be d- job's dumb friends right for, for those of us in here like we we may not get it we we may not understand why someone's going through this and we might postulate all kinds of reasons why they might be in that place but again this is what job's friends did and so let's just kind of finish with a few concluding remarks pulling some of these since i've been using this theme of threads let's pull some of these threads together there will be seasons where the surety of our faith will be tested. We're not always ready for them. In fact, I would probably guess we are never ready for them. And whatever we make of these dark seasons, we must remember that when we are free to step away from them, if the Lord allows, and examine the truth of the moment and examine the truth of what God who God is. We will see, even if it didn't feel like it, God is still there. He is in control, even in the most difficult places of life. Again, the reason we know that this is the the confession of this psalmist is because he starts with the confession, and he keeps reminding him, I'm crying out to you. He keeps going back to the foundation throughout the whole psalm. I'm crying out to you, Lord. God is in control doesn't mean that he's some kind of author of sin. That he's some kind of, you know, maniacal God who is capricious and just allows us to suffer and somehow gets his kicks, kicks and giggles out of it. Not at all. But he is still sovereignly working out everything for our good, even if we may not experience much relief in this life. There will be seasons where our surety of our faith will be tested. Two, and closely connected to the first point, is dark nights of the soul are often prolonged with little to no relief. You know there's a lot of Christians who live the Christian life with trusting and and believing that God will get the final word, but they will never feel the relief of suffering in their life. Do you know that? Do you have a place for that? It's hard, right? Because we, as much as we believe in the gospel of, of, of the end times and, and Jesus coming back and, and the age to come, we, we still believe that there's part of us that has kind of that Christian... You know, a victorious Christian mentality where if we don't see them in our now, somehow that says something about either our lack of faith, or our lack of theology, or lack of something. And we just don't have space. And so what happens a lot of times when we will counsel someone in these moments is that we kind of make them feel more shame for where they are rather than just being a, a loving, assured person in their presence who is still confident in the gospel even when others might be shaking a bit. But the lights will be long. I mean, again, Spurgeon, for all intents and purposes, from the time he took the post there at his church to the time he passed away, like, I mean, he experienced these routinely for 30 to 40 years. You should, it's called Spurgeon Sorrows. Just hit me. Yep. All right. Zach S. one Spurgeon Sorrows. Go read it, it's helpful. Three. And this is just to re-emphasize what I've said several times already. The church must remain an unrelenting source of support and strength for the depressed. For those caught in darkness. Don't be jokes, dumb friends. Can I say that again? I'll say it again. You want me to say it? Don't be jokes, dumb friends. The church must be comfortable in the unknown mysteries of God while also standing on the revealed promises of God. That we can more that we might be able to easily might be able to see more easily than those who are found in those deep dark places. That's exactly why God's got you in their life. Right? That you can stand on those promises when someone else is struggling to do so. I think it's one of the things that only the church can provide though, right? I mean, there's all kinds of organizations out there where people find community, right? And that's part of the problem. But when the church actually is the community that we're designed to be, we provide something the world cannot offer, which is grace and mercy and presence in the midst of life's hardest situations. I, I have met many Christians, and perhaps those who are formerly professing Christians, however you want to wrestle with that, who walked away from the church because they didn't find that space to suffer in the church. didn't find it. And the church must be careful not to simply like articulate it in like our theology as an intellectual repository of theological information. Right? Lord help us not to be that. But somehow that's and that becomes so disconnected from the real gritty aspects of life. If our theology only offers this, I will argue it actually renders itself useless. And then last, and this is, this is the thing that this happened right? Because again, we see from a vantage point that the psalmist doesn't see though. We will experience future and full resurrection. Like it awaits us. Friend, if you're here and you've been caught in the long season of just struggle or suffering or, or a battle with whatever it may be, it could be a battle with sin. It could be battling a relationship. It could be battling in just circumstances. It can be battle in any number of things. It can be battling with your physical health. Whatever it may be, dear brothers and sisters, when the cloud clears, we will see that our resurrection is sure. Amen? Like if we get nothing out of the gospel, we get this out of the gospel. Real resurrection. In the age to come, That will be the most glorious and joyful rest you and I can possibly receive. And we've all longed for all the way through this COVID. world. that's my hope for us. Church will be there to help people in dark times and people in dark times will know that the church is a real place to go to. So there's people standing in there with real tangible, real tangible, of what God is, who God is, and what He is doing and what He is doing. Amen. Let's pray. I follow this morning as we take this verses of this section, go through some of the things we've read here. life. may our theology grow and continue to strengthen, so that we might one have a deeper rest and a deeper, a deeper uh, hold. Abide more deeply in you, God. for your son, Jesus. And Father, as we take to this table here in a moment, Father, Tom comes to prepare the way for us here, Father, I just pray that you'd help us to help us to enjoy this communion together as your people, knowing that that is coming, there's a feast coming. And we will enjoy forever and ever and ever. And this is just a small picture. Thank you for helping us and allowing us to be part of people. I think be asking you.